Hey guys, we wanted to take a moment to thank you for tuning in. Check back weekly to stay up to date with what God is doing here in the life of our church. To learn more information, you can find us online at sturkey.church. Our prayer here at the church at Sturkey Hills is that you are moved by this message. Guys, thanks for tuning in and have a blessed week. Well, I don't know how to take that. Y'all are laughing at my dance moves. Y'all didn't know your pastor could break it down. All right. Well, that just goes to show you this. When you are madly in love with two amazing daughters that God puts in your life, you'll do anything in the world for them. And that means becoming vulnerable and, and goofy, whatever it takes. And uh, I do it all again. And uh, what you saw right there cost me tens of thousands of dollars. And uh, I got a couple of DVDs out of it. I got a couple of son-in-laws, okay, out of the chute. I seem like I got the short end of the stick. Now I have a pair of grandchildren, and they're off the charts, off the chain, and I have two foreign exchange grandsons. How's that for you right there? Okay, and so, uh, so weddings are a big deal, right? And uh, they always have been. Because wedding is this amazing institution that God birthed and in the creation account when he made man and woman. And, uh, and it's a delight for me to get to be a part of weddings for people that I get to pre-marriage counsel, people in the church. And, and uh, it's a big deal. And it's a big deal to Jesus. It's a big deal to God the Father. It's just a big deal. It paints a picture of the church, the bride of Jesus. It's a big deal. And so today, if you'll open your Bibles to John chapter 2 as we continue navigating through this amazing gospel according to John, uh, we're going to learn some stuff today. And I'll just go ahead and tell you right now, I need your participation. Tell your neighbor, the preacher isn't picking on you. The preacher loves you. And you don't have to listen to him if you don't want to. Okay? Because we're going to talk about some hard things today as we move forward. Now, this is the inaugural uh, miracle for Jesus today. It's called the wedding at Cana. And it is what launched him into his public ministry. He's about 30 years old. He's lived a sinless life. Uh, but people still don't know him as, uh, as, as God. They don't know him as the Messiah because it doesn't look like what they expected. And so in this thing today, uh, he, he launches his ministry. And, and why he chose a miracle at a wedding, we don't really know. We just don't know. I, I know now that often after the wedding, there's some marriages that would like a miracle. Amen? <laughs> okay, it just happens that way. I, I know that as people, as human beings, we like to know and we like to believe and embrace that God is still a miracle-performing God because there are moments in our life when we would like a miracle. If you've ever desired a miracle, say amen. amen. Well, it's good news. I got good news for you. He still is in the miracle-performing business. He still performs miracles. And we're going to see today some of the ingredients of what, that, what, of what that scenario needs to look like or include for him to uh, perform miracles. Now, I want to be clear about it. Miracles are not at your demand. He's not your genie. You know, you rub the bottle and Jesus comes out. You say, this is what I want. And I got mustard seed faith. Where's it at? You know, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Now, you can turn on the television and you can find people who will tell you that it works that way. That's a lie. It is not biblical. However, it is biblical for you to know and for me to grab on the reality that God still loves you and I as his children. And God still performs miracles in our life. Uh, here recently, I, I was doing some pre-marriage counseling and, and the... The young lady said, yeah, said, I, it, our relationship kind of came to this weird place, and I, and I started praying, God, if this is supposed to work out, change his heart. And she said, and within just a short period of time, man, God changed his heart. And she was like staggered. She's like, it's like he answered my prayer and performed a miracle. And I said, listen, let me tell you something. He always answers prayer, and he's always performing miracles. The problem is we're too focused on what's next to realize that he performed a miracle based on what we requested just the other day. So let me just, a little learning point. When you pray expecting a miracle, write it down, and then look every day for an answer. 
Because he answers prayers. And his prayer may be yes, bam, there it is. His prayer may be no, that's out of my will right now. His, prayer may, his answer may be not right now. But he will answer your prayer, okay? Now, I want you to know that, that, that your faith is included in the formula for answered prayer. I had a guy that I worked with down in Alabama, uh, excuse me, in Chattanooga, and he was a man of God. I mean, he loved Jesus. He studied his word like crazy. And so one day I had a cold, worse than I have today. And he said, uh, he goes, if you had enough faith, you wouldn't have that cold. And I, and I, and I valued his opinion usually because he, he studied the word a lot. And I said, oh, really? And he goes, oh, yeah, if you had mustard seed faith, you could command that cold to be gone. I said, uh, and I was on the good part of my journey. I'm out scratching and digging and clawing in some Jesus. And, and I said, you believe that? He goes, oh, yeah. And I said, well, I remember not too long ago you were sick. He said, yeah, I know I didn't have enough faith. And I, I mean, it really set me back. I said, what do you do with the Apostle Paul? I said, he had a thorn in his flesh. He prayed three times for it. And he says, nope, I'm not removing that thorn. I'm going to give you grace sufficient. He looked at me and he said, Paul was lacking in faith. I said, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. How do you lack faith and do that? You know, so let me just go ahead and tell you. Your desire for God to perform a particular miracle in your life is not determined by your faith. It's determined by your faith coupled with the sovereign will of God. And sometimes he will choose to watch your faith and say, wow, look at that faith. It aligns itself with all that I'm doing. I'm going to give you that miracle. But sometimes it doesn't look that way. So I just want you to know. God still performs miracles, but they are not on demand by us. In fact, Romans 8.28 clears this up a little bit, and it says uh, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So sometimes your miracle might not align itself with a miracle that he's doing in somebody else's life, but at the end of the day, he works them all together for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So let's talk about the making of a miracle. That's the title of the message on the back of your worship guide. And number one, point number one, is an accessible Jesus. For a miracle to happen, Jesus must be in the mix. Now listen what happens in this inauguration of Jesus' public ministry. It says in verse 1 and 2 of John chapter 2, on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the wedding. So here we go. Watch this. So Jesus has just recently gotten baptized. Jesus has spent 40 days defeating the enemy and the three major categories of temptation on Temptation Mountain. Jesus has come back off the mountain. He's appointed some of his disciples. And now here's where it all happens. Here's where it hits, the rubber hits the road. They end up going to a wedding. Now, let me tell you something that's interesting about this. The fact that Mary is invited... And Jesus is invited, and Jesus' followers are invited. Not only are they invited, but we'll see in a few minutes that they attend. Let me tell you something. Sometimes we're bashful about taking our Jesus into the world. If we never take Jesus into the world, we're not making him accessible to the world that needs him most. We're real good at taking Jesus to church, amen? I mean, we'll show up to church, get the praise on. Yeah, I'm a singing, you know, I got my Bible. You know, I'm all smiley, got a countenance going for me. I, man, I'm here at church, and, and we're, we're good taking Jesus to church. But sometimes we don't take him into the place that needs him most. Jesus was not afraid of showing up in a place that was not necessarily where he was, where most of the religious world would think that he needed to be. Jesus not only showed up, not only felt comfortable going, he took his disciples with him. I want you to know that sometimes you and I as born-again people, sealed in the Holy Spirit, need to take the Jesus in us into a world that's a little bit uncomfortable and a little bit, uh, that's going to be a little bit under judgment from those who watch. And it's okay. Now, I'm going to clear this up in just a minute in case you're wondering what I mean by that. But just, just know that Jesus needs to be accessible for a miracle to happen. Now, listen to some of his miracles, okay? There's about 40 major miracles uh, listed in all four Gospels total. Uh, John lists about eight of them. And this is what they look like. He, this one, chapter 2, water to wine. 
Chapter 4 heals a dying man. Chapter 5 cures a paralyzed man. Chapter 6 feeds thousands with a borrowed sack lunch. Chapter 6 he walks on water. Chapter 9 sight to the blind. Chapter 11 raises the dead. Chapter 21 he creates a meal. Chapter uh, And then we get to the end and he resurrects and ascends into heaven. So it's pretty significant stuff that Jesus does. But if you take Jesus out of the equation and you don't let him be in that spot where he's accessible to the crisis, the miracle never happens. So there's people in our world that need a miracle. If you know somebody in your life that, that could use a miracle, say, I, I know somebody. Yeah. Jesus needs to be there. He's the one that's going to change the game. Okay? And it may be that God wants you to make Jesus accessible to them. Now, Jesus still performs miracles. Even the ones that listed barely scratched the surface of what he did in his three years of ministry from age 30 to age 33. In fact, John chapter 21, verse 25, the last verse, it says this, Many things that cannot even be written because they are too great and too many. So he shows up now at this, uh, at this wedding. Now, let me, let, me, let me dive into that a little bit, unpack that a little bit. Weddings are a big deal to us. We got nothing on the Jews. In Jewish culture, first century, really, really big deal. Here's what it looked like. Uh, the, 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 groom was the bridegroom was responsible for the wedding. All of the supplies, all of the management, all the, organi all the organizing of the thing. The guy would be responsible for bringing a dowry to the father of the bride. He would already have to have a home. And then on the, it would, the ceremony would last about a week. And then on the night of the wedding, the, the, the groom, bridegroom and his, his buddies, his groomsmen, whatever, they would show up and they would, uh, they would have candles and they would call out for the bride. I mean, it was a really, really big deal. And so Jesus is invited to this really, really big deal to a place where in just a minute we're going to see there's a crisis. Now let me go ahead and qualify what I mean when I say it's sometimes you need to make Jesus accessible by being in a compromised place. This is not a law. This is not a, a, um, um, diluting Christian liberty. This is not saying, oh, it's a license for me to live like hell because I'm taking Jesus in the world. I've heard people say that. Well, the reason I hang out in bars, you know, is because I tell people about Jesus. Okay, whatever. Just take that up with Jesus. In fact, ask Jesus how many people you've led sitting on a bar stool. Uh, and if you, if you are leading people to Jesus in a bar, sitting on a bar stool, I praise the Lord for you. You keep doing that. But a lot of times what we do is we say, well, i, I got to be in the world. You know, i got to take that Jesus uh, to somebody. Listen, I want to clear that up, okay? We are called to be in the world. We are commanded not to be of the world, okay? There's a huge difference. we got to be in it, but we're not to be of it. So, Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God. And, and so to, be, to make Jesus acceptable, accessible through you, I want you to understand that your life must look different than the world. You see, often what we do, the truth is we all kind of look alike, Right? I mean, we're kind of like snowflakes. we got enough similarities. You know we're human beings. I mean, you wouldn't look up here most days and say, you know, that's a rabbit. You know, you say, that's a human being. Okay. Hopefully you'd say it's a dude. That's where I really want that. Okay. And, and so, so what happens, I'm standing up here as a guy and I'm saved. I'm born again. Jesus is, the Holy Spirit has sealed me. Jesus has saved me. And I could stand here next to a lost person and we would still just look kind of alike. You see? But there's a big difference. I'm sanctified and justified, and a lost person is not. But yet when we look at each other, we look kind of alike. When I look in the mirror in the mornings, I don't really see the first thing. I don't walk around the corner, turn on the lights, and say, whoo, that's some justified right there. Okay, Kendra doesn't look at me and say, man, you are some kind of sanctified. And she has never said to me, hey, St. Joel, where do you want to eat? I know she's thought about it, but she's just never voiced it. Okay, No, we don't like that. I want, to, I want to help you understand something. When it comes to justification and sanctification, those are like churchy words, big words, theology words, but I want, I want to help you understand it. Justification means it's just as if I'd never sinned. It justified means that when, when God looks at me, he sees me forgiven. He sees me righteous. Now, how's that? He sees me with a 100% right standing with him. Not because I'm good, but because Jesus is great. 
You see, when Jesus, when I got saved, the right standing, the perfection of Jesus was just poured over me. And so when God the Father looks at me, he sees me through the lens of what Jesus did on a cross. That's good news for me, and I hope you can get that. Because then even when I mess up and the devil wants to condemn me, I can say there is therefore now no condemnation for me. I'm in Christ. The Father sees me as justified. The same thing is true for sanctified. Sanctified means to be set apart for a particular purpose. Now listen, when you got saved, if you got saved, and, and, and then you weren't, sa- well, you weren't saved just so you can go to heaven when you die. You will But that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of God choosing to save you is so he can employ employ and deploy you in a kingdom work. He, He wants to set you apart for a particular purpose. That word sanctified comes from the Old Testament. The Jews in the tabernacle would have different jars of water. This jar of water was set apart for a particular purpose. Probably didn't have a name tag on it, but if it did, it would say, you only use this for washing hands. And then they would have another jar over here with water in it, and it, and it, it wouldn't have it. But if, if it did, the sign would say, only use this to wash the instruments of the temple. Okay? They were set apart. They looked alike, but they were set apart for a particular purpose. You and I, when we're saved, God sanctifies us. He sets us apart for something special. And there's a whole lot of people in the Christian community who never dive in to what it is that God wants to use them for. And so the reason is we struggle with the idea of being sanctified, set apart. So, so let me help you understand that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11 says this. Such were some of you. He has just gone into this big list of sinful conditions. I mean, a mess of a people. Looks like us. And it says, and such were some of you, but you were washed and you are now sanctified but you are, ju- are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Here's what he says. You're already, you're already a saint if you're a child of God. Now that pushes, that rubs the cat in the wrong way. I mean, it just doesn't work, right? I mean, I'm not a saint. I am in God's eyes. It's called positional sanctification. In other words, my position before God is sanctified. When he sees me, I'm already set apart. And when I look in the mirror, I may not look like that. I may not see that. But when God sees me, he's already set you apart, bro. You know, what are you waiting? Won't you just conform to what it is I've set you apart to do? Well, that's called positional sanctification. The other one is what part you play in it. Because you don't play a part in the first part. When you got saved, he fixed that. He already made you a saint. The second part is practical or progressive sanctification. This is your part. This is the tangible, physical side of it. This is the part where you surrender to what it is he wants from your life, and you begin to see your life transform into a saint. Not perfection, but just saint-like. Listen to what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. It says, therefore, come out from, among, from amidst them and be separate. And do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. You see, he says, I already see you as a saint, but now I'm calling you to start living different so other people see you as a saint. All right? That's the beginning of a miracle. When we make Jesus accessible because we take him with confidence into a world that needs him most. We take him into the crisis of the world and let Jesus do what only Jesus can do. Number two, we, there must be an available participant. An available participant. So listen to what happens. This is good. Because I want you to know God, God still performs miracles and he wants you to be part of them. Okay? I just want you to know that. So here's what it says now in verses 3 through 5. He says, and when the, ran, when the wine ran out, they're at the wedding. It says, when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no wine left. And Jesus replied, I love this. We'll unpack this. Woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. That's an interesting thing. And his mother told his servants, yeah, whatever he tells you to do, to do it. Now, here it is. This is a beautiful passage, often overread, overlooked. So Mary detects a crisis. Why? They're at a wedding, and they ran out of wine, okay? And the wedding's not over. Here's a big problem. Because if you are the bridegroom, You're responsible for all the supplies. And to run out of a particular supply means you are embarrassed. There's shame connected to that. Listen to this. And in some cases, you could be liable and sued. (laughs) How's that? 
You go to a party, run out of stuff, you sue the guy through the party, okay? That sounds like the world we live in, doesn't it? All right? So that's the way it was. And so Mary detects that there's a crisis at hand. Uh, she knows this wedding isn't going to turn out perfect. Now, let me just go ahead and pop your bubble if you're not married yet. They're not perfect, okay? Now, mothers of the bride, who wants it to be perfect? Say, I do. Oh, you liars in the church. I've preached so many weddings. You mamas of the, of the bride, you want it to be perfect. Don't lie in the church, all right? I'm going to ask it again. If you're the mother of a bride and you want the wedding to be perfect, say, yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I'm a Jean, I love you so much because you speak the truth in love, okay? <laughs> yes, you do. The expectation is perfection. Let me just go ahead and tell you, it ain't real, okay? Don't expect perfection. I'm going to give you a good example of what it should typically look like. Several years ago, I was asked to be a part of a wedding, honorable position I was asked to be a part of. I wasn't, the, I wasn't to, to conduct a ceremony, okay? I wasn't the best man. I wasn't even a groomsman. I, I didn't lead the music. That was good. I was videographer in the ferns, in the choir loft. I'm not, yeah, that's what he said. Hey, man, we appreciate you being our friend. Would you be interested in running the video camera up in the choir loft behind the ferns? Sounds good, I'm in. Okay, it's honorable. I like it. So we're in the wedding, and I'm in the ferns. And the air condition went out in the church, and it was probably 90 degrees because it was packed. It was probably 90 degrees. Everybody is sweating profusely. Okay, I'm in the ferns, watching on video as everybody sweats. And I'm watching them. They're miserable, and I'm catching it on camera. It's almost over, and the preacher says, everybody bow your heads. Let's pray. I'm, I'm in the viewfinder. And I look out there, and there is a bridesmaid. She starts doing this like a big palm tree blowing in the ocean breeze. She's doing this. And I'm sitting there up in the ferns. I'm thinking, she's going down. So I left. I emerged from the ferns. I walked down there. And in this little Baptist church, they had a modesty rail, you know, to keep the women's legs from showing when they're on the front row of the choir. And so it's like the Lord ordained me to move from videographer to lifeguard right there in a moment. And I walked down there. I'm not kidding. I walked down there. She just fell right back in my arms. And so I thought, okay, cool. I, got, I caught her. Career, uh, go Joel, you know. And, and then I realized she's just dead weight. She dead, all right. Just a big old corpse I'm holding. And somebody's going to get her feet. Nobody got her feet. And you know you peek in your prayers. You know you do. Nobody's peeking, man. They're in it. They're in it. And I'm holding this. So then I thought, in my brilliance, it's okay. I'll make her disappear. I'll rapture her before they ever wake up. So I, so I thought, I'll get her across this modesty. I started dragging her big old body across. I shouldn't say that. She didn't have a big body, but it was big body when she's dead. And I'm pulling her across that. She lost a shoe. The dress got all hiked up, you know, and her hair was stuck in my sweaty shirt. And I'm wrestling this body across this knee wall, all right? I got her across there, still nobody looking. They praying. They consumed him for whatever. So I drug her over to the side, and I got her laid down. And about that time, somebody came and had water and put it on her head, and she... She was revived. It was a miracle right there. Miracle wedding just like Cana, okay? Now, why do I tell that story? Because they're not perfect. Weddings are not perfect, and they won't be. So let me just go ahead and tell you. It's moments like these where Jesus needs to be accessible. There's no doubt in my mind that Jesus wanted me to catch her. I don't know that he wanted me to drag her across that rail, but something had to happen. Okay, I was on my own. I'm operating in the flesh, but, but in, in the moment, it's okay. Now, listen, here's the deal. Whether it's a wedding whether it's your marriage, whether it's your relationship with your children, whether you just lost your job, whether your father or your mother no longer know their name or your name, um, whether you've just been diagnosed with an illness, Jesus needs to show up in that place. And he wants you to participate in a miracle. I'm telling you, he still performs miracles. Now, they needed a miracle because this was a, a terrible situation for this wedding because they were out of wine. And so, so Mary knew that this was a problem. Now the, now, the next thing I want you to notice about this verse, which is really kind of funny, she knew that they were out of wine, and then she says this. He, she says, uh, Jesus, fix it. And his answer, I want to clear this up. I want to unpack this. Woman? That's what he says. Woman? Why are you saying this to me? I'm going to try that today when Kendra says something to me. I'm going to say, woman? You know? Get thee behind me, Satan. No, I ain't going to say that. Okay. I won't even say woman. That sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? I mean, who says that? If you're some caveman in here calling your wife woman, we need to talk. Okay. 
No, but listen, it's, he uses that word regularly throughout the Gospels. He refers to women as woman, all right? Here's the deal. When you look it up in the Greek and you look at the context of it, it's the same thing as in our culture we say, ma'am, like, yes, ma'am. That's what it is. And I remember when we moved here from Alabama, the girls were taught, our daughters were taught to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. And one of our daughters went to school and called her teacher, ma'am. Teacher told her, don't call her, ma'am, makes her feel old. She came home and said, we're not supposed to say ma'am anymore. It makes them feel old. I said, she feels old because she is old. You go down there and say, yes, ma'am. Okay? Because it's not a matter of her age. It's a matter of them being respectful. Okay? And, and so, so he's just saying, ma'am. And then he says this. Why are you bringing this to me right now? What's this got to do with us? My time isn't here. Now, his time wouldn't come for three more years. His time was on a cross, bleeding profusely for the sins of the world. His, his, his time was when they would bury his, his dead body in a tomb that was borrowed. His time was when on the third day he would rise from the dead and ascend from that grave, uh, a victorious over death, hell, and the grave. That was his time. And he said, why, why are we doing this right now? So here's a good question. Why would she be so anxious for Jesus to kind of come out as uh, as something more than just a human. Could it be that for 30 years she's carried this stigma about her life because you know all of her friends, although they said, yeah, Mary, we know you've never been with a man. We know that you had that baby and God made you pregnant. We know. You know they didn't. For their 30 years now, you know they've questioned this is just a guy. Sure, he's a good kid. He doesn't do anything wrong, but he's not God. He's not the Messiah. And now she's like, okay, can you just get this out of the closet? Why don't you come on out and be glory, show your glory, okay? She, she could have that in her. But I want you to notice what she does after he says, woman, why is this? Uh, what are you saying to me? She turns to his disciples, and she says, okay, yeah, Jesus. She turns to the disciples and says, hey, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. The greatest, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible, and here it is. Whatever Jesus tells you to do, do it. Mm. God, God often is unable to perform. That's a stretch. It's a hard word to say about God. He's able to do anything. He's unable to perform a miracle in your circle because we simply aren't obedient to the commands that he's given us. We don't do what he says. Oh, wow, listen to this. And yet we want him to do what we say. I've never said that. That's, that's huge. He, he often doesn't do what, what he wants to do in our life because we won't do what he has instructed us to do in our life. And so, so now we realize that Jesus has to have participants in this thing called a miracle. Now, the third thing I want you to see, we have accessible Jesus, available participants. The third thing I want you to see are agreeable commands. Agreeable commands. So Mary said, hey, just do whatever he tells you. Where does that go? What does that lead to? He tells us now in verse 6, he says, Now, there were six stone water jars there for Jewish ceremonial washing, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Time out. Just so you know what we're talking about. Somewhere between 150 and 180 gallons. Okay? A lot. About over 2,000, up to 2,500 glasses of something. Okay? And he says, Jesus told his servants, the one that Mary said, do what he says. Jesus says, hey, fill the water jars with water. Listen to how they respond. So they filled them up to the very top. That's a good answer. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the head steward. And they did. I want you to see that for miracles to happen in our life, we must agree to the commands that Jesus gives us. We can't live our life like we want to live and expect God to perform miracles in our life. He won't, it doesn't work that way. And, 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 and the more we surrender to the commands, the will, the desires, the design of Jesus in our life, the closer we get to God performing magnificent things in our life. Now it says in verse 9, when the head steward 
tasted the water that had been turned into wine, not knowing where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the bridegroom and he said, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the cheaper wine when the guests are drunk. You have kept the good wine until now. So Jesus now is performing this amazing miracle at a wedding. And the miracle is simply this. Oh, you all are out of beverage? Oh, you've drank the good stuff and the bad stuff? Oh, you need more? Well, man, I'm here for the party. So let me just make 180 gallons of beverage so the party goes on. That's what it looks like, isn't it? That's what it looks like. Well, we need to unpack this a little bit. What was in those pots? What, what was it that he made? What was it that the whole party was going to drink to the full of? What did that look like? Well, we live in a world that wants to compromise everything. We, we as Christians, I'm going to listen. I've done it. I still do it sometimes. You do it. We all do it. We want to live in a gray area, a foggy area of sanctified living. You know what that looks like? Well, I'm a Christian. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want Jesus to be real in my life. But when you get right down to it, I want to live a little bit like the rest of the world. So my question is not just can can a Christian drink alcohol? We'll address that one. It's a good question. I know y'all wonder. I know you've had those conversations. I know you've landed on one side of the equation or the other. But it's not just can a Christian drink alcohol? The question might be can a Christian view pornography? Can a Christian watch a rated R movie where it has explicit scenes? Can I gossip if it's as a prayer request? Can I tell a small lie to help the bigger story? Can I overeat because she cooked it? Can I not pray every day so I don't bother God? Can I not read the Word every day because I don't really have time? Can I not tell others about Jesus because I want to respect their position? Can I not give 10% of my offering because that's an Old Testament discipline and I really don't have 10% to spare? You see, all of those questions, there's a very defined answer in Scripture. An answer that the Holy Spirit convicts the reality to the answer of. But often what we do is we don't like the answer, so we back ourselves off and try to find this way to compromise a truth. It looks like this when you're doing student ministry. I would have boys usually come to me and say, hey, uh, Pastor Joel, I've got a question. I said, what is it? Is it wrong to kiss a girl? I'm like, well, I don't know. You getting ready to marry her or something? You know, they'd be like middle school. Oh, no, I don't want to marry her. I just want to kiss her. Okay, what do you mean by kissing her? You know, let, let's unpack that. Let's define that a little bit. You talking about a little peck on the cheek? Well, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> so it, we want to live in a gray area, okay? We want to live in a gray area. Jesus is not a gray savior. Jesus is a truth savior. So what do we do now that we're into this thing? Well, how do we handle this thing? What was made in 150 to 180 gallons in quantity? What is it, church? Well, it's wine. That's what it says, right? I was listening to a commentator, a preacher that I listened to. Now, he's from the Northwest, so it's a liberal area that he pastors in typically. And, and this is what he said. And I listen to him a lot, but I don't agree with this. This is what he said. He said, Jesus made wine. We know, in fact, that he made alcohol wine for the party. Not only that, we know that Jesus drank wine, alcohol wine, because they accused him of being a drunkard. Not only that. We know that alcohol wine is acceptable. That, that's what he said because the word wine is always alcohol. This, of all that, I, I didn't align with any of that. But then he said this. He said, not only that, he said, but grape juice only came into existence in 1869 when Thomas Bramwell Welch opened a factory making non-alcoholic wine. He says, Welch, or this is, this is the history, Welch was an adherent to the Wesleyan Methodist Connection which strongly opposed manufacturing, 
buying, selling, and using intoxicating liquors and advocated the use of unfermented grape juice for the Eucharist, the communion, or during any church service. And then he said this, so really grape juice has really only been around for about 150 years. Now on the surface, if you listen to that and you want alcohol in your life, you'd say, well, (laughs) check the box, I'm in, all right? But let's get real about it for just a second. First of all, let me address the fact that grape juice has only been around for 150 years. That's the dumbest thing you could ever say. The first grape that ever fell off a vine that somebody stepped on and juice came out, grape juice was there. That was a long time ago. I believe about 6,000 years ago. Okay? So don't go there. Number two, don't say that Jesus made alcohol wine. And don't say that Jesus drank alcohol wine. Did he or didn't he? I don't know. He never got drunk. But let me, I want to I help us today. I'm a pastor. I try to set the bar here. I'm, if you've got a bar that's right here, and maybe your bar is higher than mine, thank you. I mean, I praise Jesus for people like you. But I have to set the bar high, okay? I want to set the bar high. Why? Because Jesus left the bar high, okay? Now, so let's unpack this thing a little bit. What about what was made in those jars, okay? Was it alcohol wine? Was it? Many people want to believe it was. And if you want to study and, and, and develop your doctrine based on the Greek, you go to the Greek and you find the word for wine, and there's many of them. One of those is oinos, O-I-N-O-S, oinos. Oinos can be fermented alcohol wine, or oinos can be unfermented uh, a juice from the grape. That, that's it. It can be either one. So what did Jesus make here? Well, that's a, that's a, a really good question. But before I get there, I, I want to say this. No matter what you read, no matter what conversation you have, um, I want you to be very careful about how you make the decisions in your life. Ground them in the Word of God and not advertisements on television, not culture. When the whole world says, hey, this is a good thing, it should just blow up in your mind. I need to question this because if the whole world says it's a great thing, it's probably not a great thing, all right? And so I want to say this. I have known a lot of people who choose to drink, but just about as many who can't choose when to stop, okay? It might be in a moment. It might be at a party. It might be at 11B when it's a whole lifestyle, okay? So I'm afraid of it. I'm afraid of it for me. I'm afraid of it for you. I'm afraid of it for your children. I'm afraid of it for those who watch your life. And so I would say to anybody, and, and if you li- don't leave the church because we differ, uh, but if, if, if you have alcohol in your life and you ask me, I would tell you, it's not the best choice for your life. The risk is too great and the reward is non-existent. And you may say, well, I got a, pre- I got a doctor who says if I drink a little bit, it's good for my heart. You need to find a new doctor, Okay. I'm just saying, I will, I will always set the bar high on that. And parents and grandparents, you'll never, your children will never hear me say that it's good for their life. I will never say that. They'll never see me do it because I will not lead them to do something that the risk is too great and the reward is non-existent. Because the truth is this, and nobody asks the question, is it okay for a Christian to smoke marijuana? It is if you're in Colorado because it's legal. Is it okay for a Christian to take opioids if they're under prescription? Well, the doctor said I could take them, okay? See, it opens up Pandora's box when we begin to ask more questions. So what did Jesus create? Well, before I tell you what what I believe he created, and before I tell you why, before I, I show you why Jesus set the bar higher, I just want you, to, I want you to hear this. If you, if you have alcohol in your life, I don't judge you for that. But don't ever in my presence say the reason I drink is because Jesus drank. The reason I drink is because, after all, Jesus made alcohol wine for a wedding. I heard somebody once say Jesus was the first great bartender. I wanted to punch him in the mouth. Okay, don't say that. You can decide on your own, but don't bring Jesus into the equation. And I want to show you why. What did Jesus create? We need to know all this chatter that you're reading here, even in commentaries, the ch- the chat, it's chatterless when it talks about the holiness 
the perfection and the love of Jesus. It talks about liberty. You know, all things are good now. He's made everything clean. It's okay for me to drink. You have a liberty. I'm, li- I, I'm under liberty. I can drink whatever I want to drink. I can eat whatever I want to eat. But I want to tell you this. I want to tell you that love always champions personal liberty. I, I want to tell you that what happens to the other person always champions over what you and your preference is. 1 Peter 2.22, let's talk about Jesus, who he was, and it'll help us understand what he made. 1 Peter 2.22, speaking of Jesus, he committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Now, somebody right now who, who, who embraces alcohol says, well, it just means he didn't get drunk because being drunk is a sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That just means he didn't get drunk, right? Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest and cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Are you seeing the picture that Jesus is sinless? If you hear, if you hear that, he is sinless, say yes. Okay, let me explain something. Why is it important that Jesus maintains his absolute sinlessness, his absolute perfection throughout his whole life? Why is that important? Because he is going to be the lamb shed for our sin. In 1 Peter 1, 18 says, His precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. If Jesus had one sin in his life, it would disqualify him to be the sinless, spotless lamb of God. One sin. So you know he didn't get drunk. What about this sin? Romans 14, chapter 20, uh, verse 20. Now let me pause. Here's the story. They've drank all the wine. I know that some had drank too much. How do you know that? Have you ever been to a party where alcohol served? If you have, say I have. If you, if you know and agree with me that at every party there is somebody who drinks too much, say, that's true. Get thee behind me, I'll take you down. See, the devil doesn't want me to talk about this stuff. So here's the thing. Here's the thing. They had already drank everything, okay? Now Jesus is going to make 150 to 180 gallons of something for a people who some of them had already probably drank too much. Why is that a problem? Romans 14, verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So if for a second there's people at this party who have a tendency to drink too much, for Jesus to provide all that they could possibly hold in their being and it be alcohol, would you think that's a sin or would that be okay? Well, the answer seems obvious to me. That would be Jesus becoming a stumbling block to the people at the wedding. Not only that, but in that commentary where he said, and Jesus drank alcohol wine. He may have. I don't know. But it doesn't say anywhere that he drank it. He just created it. And lastly is this. What was in those pots? Well, the master of ceremonies gets it, and he says, wow, most people serve the best wine first, leaving the bad wine for later after they are drunk. You've given the best uh, you've brought the best at the very last. What was in those pots? What was in those pots was a one-time event, a moment in time where Jesus, God in the flesh, says, hey, boys, get those pots and fill them with water and bring them over here. Now I want you to dip some out and give it to the master. And in a fraction of a millisecond, what was water became wine. Was it alcohol or was it not? I believe with every ounce that's in me every conviction that's within me I'm convinced within myself that what Jesus created was something supernaturally different than anything ever tasted now 
You can read this story and say, hey, this is my license to express my liberty and to have alcohol in my life. You can do that, and I don't judge you for that. But as for me and my house, and as for me as pastor of this church, I will continue to say alcohol is not good for your life. And it won't start being good for your life tomorrow. And if you have alcohol in your life, you may be just around the corner from realizing what a problem this stuff can be. And if you want to see what it can look like, join us on Monday nights at 11B and you'll see and smell what it looks like. Okay? Now, as your preacher, as your pastor, as your shepherd, that is my conviction and that is our stance. Number four, assignable intentions. You remember at the beginning I said your miracles don't come on demand like Jesus is your genie? I want you to know, too, that when God performs a miracle, it has assignable intentions. There's something he's doing it for to demonstrate or reveal something else. That's what a sign miracle is all about. So in verse 11, he says this, Jesus did this as the first of his miraculous signs in Cana of Galilee. In this way, he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Why did he even do this miracle at a wedding? Because he was revealing his glory, the greatness of who he was, the fact that he was God in the flesh, and he had these newly appointed disciples, and he wanted to show them. They had already believed. Now he wanted to demonstrate to them that he was really God, and it nailed, it secured their belief in him something that they would never be able to explain away and I want to tell you something God still performs miracles and he wants to demonstrate to you his glory so you can believe at a different level but I, but I want to issue a warning sometimes we pray and and we just we don't look for answers and I, I want you to pray miraculous prayers to a miracle working God with, with faith so you can experience miraculous answers. Why? So you can say, I've got God on tap. I can get him to do whatever I want to do. No. So you can say, wow, God is amazing. Because he's still just as amazing today as ever before. Now, I want to show you something. What about miracles for you? What about you being a part of something like this? Jesus said, in John chapter 14, he said, I tell you the solemn truth, the person who believes in me will perform miraculous deeds that I'm doing, listen to this, but will perform greater deeds than these because I'm going to the Father. Jesus said people who believe in him will perform greater miracles than the miracles he performed. Now that's kind of odd. I mean, he fed thousands with a Happy Meal. He, he called out a stinky dead man to come on out. He told the blind to see. He told the lame to walk. I mean, he did. Um, walked on the water, calmed the sea, called fish out, took tax money out of the fish's mouth. I like that one. I mean, on and on and on. And then Jesus says, you as believers in me can do greater things than this. What's greater than that? What's greater than that? What's the one thing that's greater than calling a man in his grave to come forth. It's to introduce every person to the reality that they can have life now and life forever. That in Jesus they will never spend their eternal destiny in the grave. What's greater than that? What's greater than, you know what the problem with Lazarus being raised from the dead was? He had to die again. We forget to look at the rest of the story. I mean, there's a, man, thank you for raising me dead. And Jesus, I got bad news. You got to go through it again. Okay? I mean, what's better than that? So, Matthew 5, verse 14 through 16, helps us know what's greater than those. Jesus said, you, tell your neighbor he's talking to you. You are the light of the world, a town built on a hill that cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. 
It's the beginning to the greater miracle. Matthew 28 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you to the very end of the age. What's the greatest miracle you personally will ever experience? It is when the God of the universe taps on your soul and says hey sinner I love you I don't just love you with a word I, I love you with a deed and that deed is I came to earth and died in your place I paid for your sinfulness with my own blood and I want to receive you into my kingdom and in that moment that you don't create in that moment when the Holy Spirit initiates the process and you feel something from the outside speaking to something on the inside and you simply respond to that in faith and say, I hear you, God. I believe you love me. I don't know why. I don't get it, but I feel it. I want to receive that grace gift. And you simply say, God, I know I'm a sinner and I know you died in my place. I want you to come into my life. I want you to save me, but I want you to be my master and my Lord from this day. I want to walk with you through eternity. And he says, I got this. That's the greatest miracle you can ever experience. I'm telling you. I know. I walk in that miracle. I walk in that miracle every day. And I never, I've never gotten over, man, what Jesus has done for me. You know what the second greatest miracle is that you can ever experience in your life? Leading somebody else to be part of the first great miracle. Yeah. That moment when you're sharing your faith and ain't nobody seems to be interested or listening and you're just planting seeds and that's okay. That's all we're called to do is broadcast seeds. It's what I do on Sunday morning. But then one day, the Holy Spirit touches the seed that you planted and this person germinates and they say how can I be saved and you get to tell them second greatest miracle you'll ever experience and so with everybody just looking we bowing our heads and closing our eyes I want to talk to you if you've never experienced the first great miracle I want you to know this could be your day the Bible refers to it as your day of salvation where your whole existence changes for eternity. That moment in God's forever timeline when His Holy Spirit pierces through the darkness and the callousness of your world and says, Hey, I love you. I love you right where you are, but I love you too much to stay there and leave you there. Why don't you come follow me? And you can do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for calling us out. We thank you for inviting us into your presence we thank you for the miracle working power of the resurrected Jesus we thank you that the greatest miracle is when you give us a brand new birth and let us start all over again God we thank you for the challenge and the command to take that truth into a dark world to let our light shine to go into all the world making disciples so for every individual in this room this morning Wherever they are on that spectrum, if they're lost and separated from you, help them find that they can simply turn and you're there waiting. For those of us who are born again and we've experienced that first great miracle of life, help us be more committed to taking Jesus into a world of darkness. We give you the praise and the glory for it all in Jesus' name.